how successful can a niche podcast really be? You know, the answer likely depends on the niche. For example, back on episode 154 of this podcast, Glenn Hebert, the personality and power behind the Horse Radio Network, said this about his niche. So we're well, well, well into five figures. And, you know, in our niche, we'd probably never get to six figures. I don't see us ever doing that. But his comments are about an expensive and specific niche, horses. How might that be different if the niche in question is broader and very popular, like bourbon? While he was still in college, Kenny Coleman became a fan of bourbon. Kind of makes sense when you're in college, that kind of stuff tends to happen. And he got into the bourbon culture from there. His interest became a passion and his passion has turned into a multi six-figure business with a team of six, sponsorships, and even his own brand of bourbon that they're beginning to produce. And it's all built on the back of a podcast that began back in 2015 and got better and better all along the way until it was very popular. My theory of how that happened is that Kenny pursued something he loved that many others were growing to love at the same time. And he saw an opportunity to serve people like himself. And that turned out to be the recipe for success. On this episode of Podcastification, I'm talking with Kenny Coleman, and he's going to give us a behind the scenes look into the incredibly popular Bourbon Pursuit podcast and explain to us how they walked the road they have to multiple six figures in income every single year. My name is Carrie Green, and I am the Client Happiness Guy at PodcastFastTrack.com, and this is Podcastification. Podcastification is all about you, teaching you how to podcast, how to put into practice the best practices that I and my team have learned in working with hundreds of clients. You are going to podcast better from listening to this show. If you like what you hear on Podcastification, Please just hit the pause button, swipe to the sharing function on your app, and share this episode with somebody you know will benefit. And if you'd like to get in on more podcastification goodness, you can do it by subscribing to our podcast optimizer email series. And I promise you, you won't get lots of junk. You'll just get one actionable email a week. Go to podcastfasttrack.com slash optimizer. That is enough of that kind of stuff. Let's get you podcastificated right away. Kenny Coleman, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Care yourself? Yeah, I'm doing well. So you're in Kentucky, is that right? I am. I'm in Derby City, USA, Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, you, you got to say that right, Louisville. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. You'll get on a flight from uh, Delta or wherever, and they're like, we're going to Louisville. And everybody on the yeah. plane goes, boo, boo. <laughs> Yeah, or Louisville. I've uh-huh. heard that one a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. it's you got to make sure it's just Louisville. Like it does. There's yeah. no there's no s in there whatsoever. Yeah. Well, I have a friend who lives in Louisville, and he said it's two syllables. Louisville you know, is the <laughs> yeah. way he says it. So for sure. Yeah. Well, I sure appreciate you being on. If you don't mind, I'm just going to do a great big nutshell of of who you are and kind of where you've come in podcasting, and then I'm going to let you uh, correct me on any of my facts. 
done a bit of research on Kenny here. He's a tech guy and he's also co-host of Bourbon Pursuit, which is a, an amazing podcast. Uh, he's also the executive producer. Uh, he kind of got into bourbon in college, which, you know, kind of makes sense and uh, got into the bourbon culture as well. And from there, he and his co-host Ryan uh, just built this podcast and a whole business around it. They've got a team of six people now. They've got three weekly episodes. They've got monetization in a, a variety of ways happening, including their own bourbon brand, uh, which we're going to talk about a little bit here uh, as we get into the conversation. But uh, they also have a second podcast that they've begun telling the story of how they built that bourbon brand. So a lot of cool things going on. Kenny, what did I miss? Uh, you you did some really good research there. For somebody that doesn't have a Wikipedia page, page about them yet, you definitely found all the nuggets you could find from all of our websites. That's Yeah, well, it's definitely your sites that I got the info from. So, <laughs> so that's all good stuff on you. So from your story, it sounds like you just found something you liked. You became very interested in it and got into the culture of it and just it became a passion and you just started pursuing it. Is that pretty fair? Yeah, I'm glad you put in the word pursuing there because that's kind of how it all began. Yeah. It it was it was actually my my partner in the podcast Ryan. It was really his idea and how this started. So the original idea was that so his we both have day jobs outside of this. So yeah. we're podcasting like for a lot of us out there is a passion. It's a hobby. It's something fun, and we try to find our niche and talk about it and find an audience to connect with it. But for him, his other day jobs, he's a he owns a few different businesses, and most of it is in lawn care as in going mm. through spraying yards, making sure they're pretty and green throughout the year yeah. and stuff like that. So his day is spent listening to podcasts all day, every day yeah. in the truck. And so he said, you know, I'm going to start a podcast on my business, my industry, talking to other professionals that are in this uh, sort of, you know, the the world of making sure that it's all lawn care sort of things. And, and he goes, I, I don't know if we're going to have the runway and the audience to really talk about this at length, which back in 2015, that might have been true today yeah. that's completely different like you've got things like grass talk on tiktok and all this other kind of stuff that's just people love their lawns but anyway his brother-in-law is a purchasing manager for a very large distillery in kentucky mm. and he said you know you're from bardstown kentucky it's the ca bourbon capital of the world why don't you do a podcast on bourbon and he goes oh i'll kind of look into it and so he reached out to me because we had we were not like best friends at the time. We knew each other. Our wives were friends, and that's kind of how we met. And he knew that I was really getting into bourbon back in 2013. The bug bit me, and I was going yeah. out trying to find, taste different bottles, buy limited releases. And back then, I probably had 30 or 40 bottles of bourbon, which seemed like a lot back at the time. Yeah. And he says, would you want to go do this with me? And I said, well, let me figure this out. And I've kind of considered myself the dream crusher at times because people come to me with an idea and I'll say, well, there's probably already somebody doing it better or it's already been done. So hmm. I'm not going to waste my time with it. But, you know, back in 2015, when we launched, there was really only other two other podcasts at the time. And one was more B2B focused. Hmm. And there was another one that was, you know, people sitting around with a glass of bourbon in their hand going, oh, it smells like vanilla and caramel. I'm yeah, like, yeah. I don't want to listen to this. Like, I want to be, I want to have fun as I'm learning about something here. And so I took a a note from my manager at the time. He runs another successful podcast called The Cloudcast. And they interview startups and CEOs and everything like that to kind of bring what's happening in the cloud computing space to their audience. And I said, that's what's missing is a voice from inside mm. the industry. Like, how mm. do we get brands 
or people that are connected with brands like Maker's Mark and that red iconic wax, like how do we give them the story and have the connection with the people that are there working and that help bring that out of you know bankruptcy at one point? Like how do we tell that story? And so that's kind of been our recipe for success is you know getting in early with a lot of these distilleries before there was a ton of different bourbon podcasts around, and yeah. that sort of has been our the way that we you know we 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 put ourselves out there and say okay now we're going to talk about this story and as as more podcasters have gotten the space we continually try to evolve and pivot find new different types of topics to talk about different kinds of guests that are stretching outside of the bounds of just bourbon you know we'll bring on retailers we'll bring on yeah. people that that are in distributors like all these other different facets of the alcohol industry that are people just start finding fascinating and so we're continually evolving and trying to make the show better every single year yeah and so you guys really had an advantage being among the first in your industry i would guess tell me how you saw that advantage actually being an advantage as other shows started showing up yeah i mean it definitely cemented and solidified one of our you know our place as, as kind of like, and we're still really one of the top ranked whiskey and drinks podcasts out there. Just to give you an idea of what this was like, you understand bourbon wasn't as popular as it was now. As it, oh, yeah. You know, 2015, when we started this, we would call up the best distillers in the country or send them a cold email and we say, hey, you want to be on our podcast? And they're like, what's a podcast? Yeah, but what sure. the heck is that? Yeah. <laughs> and now you try to get those same exact people and the PR firms are like, ah, I don't know. They're really busy. And so we're yeah. able to get in kind of, and should I say, we have a little bit of leverage now so we can get in and kind of sure. get some of these 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 folks on and kind of sh- reshare their stories and kind of figure out what's new and what's happening with them. You know, having an, an early movement mentality to things and and making sure you're one of the first people there. We just kind of got lucky that it was a, a very rapidly growing category. And so we were able to kind of start small and our earlier episodes proved that because we were terrible interviewers, terrible in front of a microphone. Our audio quality was just garbage. But now we've definitely taken that all to another level. But that's just something of, as Ryan says, failing forward. And that's one thing that I really take to really to heart is what I'm producing the show is I care a lot about the listener experience now. Yeah. And so I will stop an interview if I hear something in the background we won't record unless the other guest has a microphone if we're doing yeah. it remotely like we're doing it now like i want to i ship we ship microphones to our guests because i want to make sure that we provide the best possible listener experience it's kind of like the same thing as if you're watching a a video on youtube it could be the greatest content in the world but if the video is shaking you're not going to watch it you're going to get yeah. motion sick it's the same thing nobody's going to listen if the quality's not good so that's one of the things that i really put a stake in the ground is making sure that we deliver the best listener experience for our audience Yeah. Now you mentioned a couple of things in there that I want to dig in on a little bit. The first has to do with, you mentioned, I can't quite recall the term you used, but you were talking about basically being a pioneer in your industry, one of the the first to go. And it just seems to me that people often have this fear as they're looking at a niche that they're interested in. And it's very similar to what you said when you were talking about the dream killer sort of a thing. They just think, ah, what would I say that's worthwhile and and is the industry really worth it and all that? So can you give us some advice or some tips on how to evaluate a niche? What is it that you think from your experience makes for a good niche and how do you know? So for me and what we were looking at, it was, it was kind of like, you got to figure out, well, what, 
what hasn't been done yet? And you got to have a passion in it too. I love listening to Gary Vee. Uh, some people, it's like one or the other. People love him or he hates him, but he makes a really good point. He goes, we, we live in one of the greatest times in the world right now that if you really love peanut butter, you can make $80,000 a year just talking about peanut butter. Like you just got to find that niche and own it if it's something that you're really passionate about. And when you're trying to figure out like, is there an audience there? Is this going to work? For bourbon, a lot of it really exists on online Facebook groups. And I could you could see the growth and the explosion of the category when some of these groups when started off at two to three thousand people. And by the time even today, some of them are up to like fifty, sixty, seventy thousand people. And that's over the span of four or five years. So you see just the growth of the category and you can kind of figure out is there an audience there? Do people care about it? And for us, it was also trying, I mean, we we always say this is hard because we're a niche of a niche of a niche of a niche. It's like, you got to be a podcast listener. You got to really like whiskey, not just whiskey, but you got to really love bourbon. And you have to be really geeky about bourbon because it's just not like the average bourbon consumer. Like this is people that are really nerdy and really want to know more about the the inside workings of you know bourbon, the industry and stuff like that. And so we really want to make sure that we cater to that audience. And you know the, the idea of a thousand true fans really comes in as like you can if you find that audience and you build that audience, then you can build a sustainable business off of it. And that's really what we're, we're moving towards as well. Yeah. And I love the way you described that because that thousand true fans idea that Kevin Kelly came up with is really a truth that, uh, you know, if you're willing to drill into it and do the work, uh, you can, you can really build a, maybe not a wealthy sort of a business, but you can build a comfortable living off of those people because they're just as passionate about it as you are. And they're willing to to help you succeed because you're providing good value to them. So as you got into this, I, by the way, I went back and listened to your first episode. And oh gosh, yeah, <laughs> you guys, you guys had a decent amount of room tone going on in the in the room. I mean, it was kind of echoey, uh, and I loved what you guys said at the end. And I want you to comment on your attitude uh, that was expressed in this. You guys said, "If we suck, let us know. If it's good, let us know. If you think something else would be cool, let us know. We just want to learn and grow as we go." So talk to me about that. Why do you think that's important for a podcaster? Man, you really did some research on this one. So thinking about what it was in the old days, and and we still do it today, we still do listener surveys, and we still talk to our Patreon community and say, what do you want to hear? We're the vehicle to get you the information. Granted, it started off as us as this idea of wanting to find information. And we understand that. I think over time, you get better as, as interviewing skills, as speaking skills, as everything like that happens. And so, yes, I'm sure that everybody needs some help at the very beginning. And that's one of the things that you kind of have to learn on your own too, is make sure you go back and record yourself and listen to it a few times and think, is this something that I do good here? How can I get more inflection in my voice? How can I make this more entertaining for a listener? But at the same exact time, you know, when it comes to the topics of of what we're covering, you've got to understand to know your audience. Just because you think it sounds exciting doesn't mean that everybody else is going to be excited about it. So you've got to sprinkle in some things that are either, you know, show suggestions that come from fans or listeners of the show and giving them shout outs as well as when you do it and say, hey, this topic was a suggestion from Bob from Ohio. And that means all the world to some people that do listen is to kind of give them that little nod. Yeah, and Bob from Ohio is going to tell his four bourbon friends about his podcast episode, and you've just grown your audience by three. (laughs) So it's a pretty cool dynamic, the way that works. Now, you guys obviously did exactly what you said. You took suggestions, and you learned, and you you grew as you went along. 
And you guys are at the point now where you have monetized on a number of levels. I was just looking at your page. You've got a Patreon that's pushing 15K a month. You've got your own brand. You've got uh, sponsorships on your show. Did you guys start out with an idea that we're going to monetize this thing or were you just wanting to talk about bourbon? Like anything, it starts off and it's like any startup story. When you have a, a tech company that starts, they don't start putting ads in front of your face because you're not going to use the product. Right. And for us, it really wasn't to say that we can go out there and find advertisers on day one. We don't have a proven platform. We don't have something that shows that we can bring in the download numbers. I mean, anybody out there that's getting into podcasting, you'll start going and you'll go through all these different websites and they'll say, oh, you need X thousand of downloads to be able to charge this month and so on and so forth. So we started off as, as just the passion side of things. And I got to admit, I suck at sales. I'm terrible at it. I am one of those people that I think if we build it, they will come. And that was my goal all along. If we build a great podcast and we build this download numbers are there, then people will come to us and want to advertise. And it worked a little bit. It, it wasn't a great turn of events. I mean, it took, yeah. to be fair, and to people that are out there, like, don't think that anything's an overnight success. Right. We grinded for probably a year and a half or two years before we ever saw our first ad dollar ever come in. And so it takes a long time to start building up the audience and building up the numbers that people may want to start taking you more seriously. But even at that, even the first ad dollars, you know, it was 75 bucks, 100 bucks for a placement, something like that. And you definitely get to the point where you feel, ah, this is really burning me out. I am not getting the return on investment for the amount of time that I'm putting into this. I'm sure that all your listeners out there know that when you're starting a podcast, you're going through and you're finding new guests, you're editing, you're cutting, you're recording, you're publishing, you're marketing, you put it out there. And then that cycle repeats over yeah. and over and over again. And it's a vicious cycle that you get yourself into. And so between my actual job and doing the podcast, I was probably working 80 hours a week trying to make it all a success. And I got to the breaking point and I just said, I don't know if I'll be able to do this podcast anymore. And I talked mm -hmm. to my partner, Ryan, I even put it out there on Twitter and I said, I don't know how much longer I can continue this going just because of the time commitment involved to, you know, producing something that people want to listen to on a weekly basis. And there was actually somebody on Twitter that responded back and they said, have you ever thought about doing a Patreon? Hmm. What the hell, what the hell is a Patreon? Yeah. So I go and I look into it and I'm like, let's give it a go. Like what else do we have to lose here? Yeah. So I started a Patreon and we had mild success at the very beginning, you know, 10, 20, 30 people jumping on board, five, ten dollars a month or whatever it is. And I said, cool, like this is reoccurring revenue. Like yeah. this works. This is something that we can do. And it ended up getting to about, you know, maybe a hundred, hundred and fifty people. And I that I said, this is success. Like we're doing great now. And just like anything else, if you're gonna do a Patreon, the one thing I can say is that you've got to find something that is they get value out of. And it's really hard to do that. I'm in a very special place and a very particular place with bourbon that we provide a very unique offering that what we can do is we go and select barrels of bourbon and we let our Patreon members buy bottles from the barrel. And they mm. can also come with us to go and select barrels. Like it's a whole thing in the bourbon world to actually go and pick your own barrel of bourbon yeah. at a bunch of different distilleries. It's called, they're called private selections. So we built this basically private barrel club around it. And that... As much as I'd love to say people love to come and uh, support us because of our content, I know it's because they get access to good bourbon. That's, yeah. that's, that's the reality of what it is. But we also feel very fortunate because now that's 
as you had mentioned earlier, it spiked to a little bit over a thousand, thousand fifty people that are in Patreon generating around almost fifteen thousand dollars of revenue every single month. And that has really been the lifeline because it is something that we can look at as reoccurring revenue. It's continually regenerating. And we get to build a community. Like we get to foster a community around it. And the coolest thing is that when you build that, the community almost starts becoming something where it wants to self-regulate. I had somebody in the community and they said, Hey, when are you guys going to start a Discord server? I said, never. Hmm. I don't have time to manage it. He goes, I'll manage it. I just want to manage it for you. I said, perfect. Let's yeah. do that. He ran with it. Now we have our integration. So we got a huge community of about, you know, probably 150 daily active users that are wow. just on Discord that continually talk. They're just talking about bourbon. They become the bestest of friends too. They have virtual happy hours every Friday night through Zoom calls just with them. Like I'm not even on it. Like it's yeah. just the community that are on it. And within inside the private barrel program, we also like it takes up a good 10, 20 hours of work every single week to do that. And I was able to find somebody in our community that now runs and manages it full time, also has a contract work with the liquor store that we also run things through. So they've been able to find their own other source of revenue income by helping us with it as well. So we're always looking for ways to involve the community and have them be a part of this, this progress with it. And now when you're also talking about the monetization side is that, as I mentioned, I'm terrible at ad sales, but when we're also in this sort of like slump of like, is this thing going to go on? We had this other guy named Fred Minnick reach out to us. If you've never heard of him, you can Google him. He's the biggest name in bourbon. He's got books written after him. He's been on all kinds of TV shows. Uh, he's a veteran down to earth, uh, you know, salt of the earth kind of guy. And he reached out to us and he said, so my PR team said, that I need to start a podcast, but I don't want to do one. I want to do it with you all. And I said, okay. And so that kind of gave us a little, another like springboard of saying, this is what we can do to kind of take the show to the next level. Mm. And so we brought him on. And when we brought him on, he also brought on somebody that helps does ad sales. And so I said, oh, perfect. Yeah. So, so now we have somebody else that takes care of ad sales for us. And, you know, we, it's a contract kind of basis. So he gets a percentage of whatever he sells. And it's easy for us to go and uh, kind of keep down that path. And so that's been, you know, for the podcast, like it's it's really kind of cool to see that revenue stream start being generated. It's like it's almost to the point where I think I could quit my day job. But then I also have to realize, oh, yeah, the day job also provides health insurance and like all yeah. these other benefits that I never really think about. So you got to kind of balance that. And then, you know, we can talk about the bourbon business in, in a little bit. But that's sort of the the next phase of, of where everything's going to go. Yeah. You know. I love that you guys did a Patreon model. Uh, I think recurring revenue sort of memberships are just the way to go for most podcasters. If, like you said, you have something of value to provide for them as not really an incentive, but a thank you to say thank you for supporting the show. Talk to me about some of the trial and error you guys did on what you were going to offer and how you, how did you come to decide on the Bourbon Barrel Club that you did? It's always a continual moving target of what can you offer What's not going to take too much of my time? What can I do that's not going to suck up too much of my my money and my time to be able to provide this sort of stuff too? So there's some things that we started off at the very beginning. And if I could go back, I might change a little bit of it, but it's also free marketing at the end of the day. So, so why not? So one of the things that I always look at it is, is saying, if somebody's going to give back to me, I want to make sure that they have something tangible, like something that they feel that they're connected with. And I don't do a whole lot of like, oh, if you're at this level, like you can have a Zoom session with me and the group at, you know, once a month. Like I want to be accessible to everybody. 
that's my goal is if you're going to even pay one or five dollars a month be part of my community like i want you to have access ask the questions that you want be open let me answer some of the questions let's get the community involved with it as well so that was sort of the thing is like okay well what can i provide that's not going to take up too much of my time well I made some mistakes and I picked some things that took up too much of my time. One was making sure we did t-shirts, stickers, koozies, bottle tote bags, like all these yeah. different things. And granted, it actually worked pretty well for a while. Like people loved it. It's marketing. People were wearing the t-shirts. They've got stickers on their guitar cases, their laptops, and they're, you know, they're preaching the gospel. Like that's the one thing that you need is like, how can I get more stuff out there and people see your logo Without you having to say, oh, I'm going to ship you some stuff. Will you please wear it? Like these are already yeah. your fans. Like, of course they're going to wear it. And I used to have boxes underneath my pool table that's in my other room out here. And so once a month, I would run our Patreon reports and I'd put them in this spreadsheet that would automatically calculate like, is it six months? Or is it base of the dollar? Is it doing whatever? And I would have this whole system set up where we could process and print off labels. And then I'd come down here and I have to either tape labels on or slap them on and pat bags individually. And we did that for a few years. And it got to the point where we were shipping like 40 to 60 orders every single month. And I kid you not, it would probably take me like five or six hours out of my day on a Saturday to go and pack all these things up. And I said, all right, there's got to be a better way. And so now we've actually outsourced all that to a fulfillment center based in Dallas, Texas. And so we let them do it. But we've also automated the process as well where it will automatically, when I run these reports, it runs it through our online web store and it will forward the web store order to the fulfillment company and they go and they pack it and ship it. We Mm. pay a nominal fee for it. And I'm happy to do that. It's one of those things that I know we're going to lose a little bit of money on, but we're also, we're also kind of, should I say, we're not losing money on it because we still have the, the Patreon subscription coming in, but you know, you definitely spend a little bit more, but it's nominal. And the fact that I get more time back for myself And that's been one of the things that I found within podcasting in general is that you've got to figure out ways that what's something that you're continually doing as a routine task that is repeatable every single time. And how do I automate that? Because that has been one thing that is try to figure out how do I find more time back for me so I can have time to do what I want. But at the same exact time, I've got to make sure that I'm figuring out if we're not recording, how am I promoting the show? How am I growing it? How am I pivoting? How am I engaging my community? How am I making sure that social media is, you know, still, you know, getting attention, everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. And t-shirts, stickers, those kinds of things, those are a marketing expense in the end. So they Mm -hmm. definitely, they definitely help in that regard. Well, I, I love hearing this story because I know so many people jump on Patreon because they're enthused about the possibility but then when it comes to setting up tiers and who gets what, it, it, you know, you kind of can hit a dead end. So I appreciate your your insight into that. It really is an iterative process, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, there's been some things that we used to do that we don't do and we, we take it off only because, yeah, it, it took up too much time in, in regards of what we were trying to offer or it just didn't work out, um, yeah. whether it's through a vendor or something like that. We're just like, okay, we'll just take this off and replace it with, uh, with something that maybe people want more. And I think that's also goes back to engaging community because we had said, okay, we're going to take off, you know, something, but we're going to add something else. What would you like to see? What would mm. you like to have for this level? And we actually had a, a good arrangement with this other magazine subscription. That's all about bourbon. And I said, would you all like a, a magazine subscription as a part of this? And so 
I had a good relationship. I reached out to them. I said, what kind of deal can you give me if I give you like three or 400 magazine subscriptions every year? They're like, oh, well, in that case, we'll give you the you know, X dollar amount. Yeah, so, yeah. because for them, it's it's not it's not about making a ton of money. It's about getting magazine in more hands. And it again, it goes back to that more marketing space, expense. Yeah, yeah you, you mark, you get more ad space. You get more, you get that in the hands of more people, and they can charge more for their magazines and everything like that too. So, it's it's one of those things to try to find those win win relationships with different vendors that might be in your space or offer those types of physical goods that you have some sort of niche or a tie to that people can get because yes, stickers, hats, t-shirts, koozies, whatever, like anybody can do those, but finding something that has more of that connection and establishes, you know, more of that, that educational experience to it is something that I think is a good option to move towards. Yeah. That's a great idea. Great idea. Now you mentioned earlier the importance of knowing your audience, knowing what they want, what they need. I think you mentioned surveys, things like that. How do you guys go about it? Now, I mean, now that you've got a community, I know you get a lot of feedback right there just naturally. But when you first started out, what did you do to try and get in touch with that audience and say, uh, what do they really need that we can actually meet? We've done it a, a few different ways. So, of course, we do it with our, our core Patreon audience. And so the weird thing we, we also do a little bit differently, maybe everybody else doesn't know this, is we only record our Thursday episodes for four weeks out of the entire year. We record completely evergreen content because as I mentioned earlier, you kind of get caught in this sort of cyclical motion of find a guest, cut it, edit, publish, market, start over. So what we do is we cram about 18 episodes into the span of two weeks and then we'll do that twice a year and that gets us through two different halves of the year. Yeah, it's a brilliant idea. I kind of take it from my background in software development of doing sprints. And yeah. this is what we call them recording sprints. And so what we'll do is we'll just do it in small little chunks and we'll kind of knock them all out. And that way we have our evergreen content for most of the year. Yeah. But on the other side of that is when we're getting ready to do that, about a month or two prior to that, I'll, I'll talk to our Patreon and say, who do you want to hear from? What are topics that interest you? What should we bring to you? Because as I mentioned earlier, like we're your vehicle for information and let's go ahead and bring it. And sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're poo-poo, but whatever. And I have this huge running list of ideas that are in a spreadsheet. And so there's there's never going to be any shortage of things that we want to do. And whenever we're sitting around talking or whether I think of something and it's a good idea, I'll put it in the spreadsheet and come back to it later. So I always just have this idea of how do I continually make sure that we find good topics and I don't just forget about them. So that's one way. Um, the other way that we do surveys is that we have to do it for compliance reasons. So uh -huh. we're in a, a regulated industry. And the way that Apple, Spotify, whatever works is that there's no way to gate your content for 21 plus. Mm -hmm. And as a part of, there's this thing called the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States are called Discus. And as part of their like good nature of marketing, you have to be able to prove within a relative degree of certainty that at least 89 point something percent of your audience is over 21. Yeah. And so to be able to do that is we do every two years, we do a widespread listener survey, try to put out there on all the social channels and just have people go and fill it out. And it's a, do a few things. One, to get some sort of gauge that what are the age ranges of our audience? Of course, it's like 100% usually over 21, except we get a few that are, you know, Australia and overseas and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. But at the same exact time, we also get demographic data because we all know that Spotify, Apple, it's not that apparent of what you're getting. They try to pull it off the device, but it, it's not as if you're surveying the actual human. Yeah. So we, of course, we get age, 
location, income, ethnicity, everything like that. We also add a few different kind of questions that say, does bourbon pursuit influence your purchasing decisions? Yes, no, maybe. At what degree? What are these brands that you've learned about because of the podcast, so on and so forth? And so we try to not make it extensive at a survey because we want people to fill it out and not get bored halfway through. But we want to make sure that we capture as much critical data as possible. And then we turn that into our marketing kit and our media kit and say, this is, hey, XY brand, this is our audience. This is what we can do. This is in the demographic that you might be looking for in the certain parts of the United States. And we can tailor that sort of information and that conversation to what their objectives are with advertising with us. So it kind of serves dual purposes when we do that. Yeah, that is really cool. So one of the things you guys have done kind of capitalizing on this momentum for your success is you've developed your own brand of bourbon and spirits and things like that. And I'm very curious to know where in your process did that idea and dream come from? You know, where did that come up? Was that like year one, year two, or was that four or five years into it? And then how did you start pursuing that in a way that you started to feel like, yeah, this, this might happen? Yeah, that's, it's a really good question. And it's funny looking back on it, it almost seems like a natural progression of how we got here, but we didn't start the show thinking, oh, one day we're going to have our own bourbon brand. We're going to go and we're going to go conquer the world with it. Now, I mean, it was one of those things that it, it, like everything's about lucky breaks, meeting the right people, talking about the right thing at the right time. And all of a sudden things just start falling into place. So this is kind of our story and how that happened. So there was an episode that we had talked about years and years ago now. And it was about this liquor store in Memphis, Tennessee, and they were creating their own house label bourbon. And we said, this is great. Like, this is something that's cool. It's fantastic, but it's not new. It's, It's sort of a new riff on an old spin because back in the day, grocery stores, pharmacies, they used to actually have their own bourbon that they would be there because A, it'd be medical. And even then, bars back in the day, before anything was actually bottled, we're talking, you know, pre-prohibition days, you would literally have a barrel of whiskey that would be rolled in there and they would just take whiskey straight from the barrel and that's what they would fill your cup up with. So now we're looking at this and we're saying, oh, it's cool. Like it's a, it's a new spin. Like they're bringing this back. It's their own house brand. That's going to be at this liquor store. That was the extent of it. About two weeks later, I get this phone call from a guy and he goes, hey, I heard your episode and I helped build that brand would you be interested in doing your own? And I said, hmm. tell me more. And, and so come to find out this guy's a barrel broker. And he says, depending on the day, I got two to 5,000 barrels in inventory. You can come and pick and choose what you want and we'll figure it out. And for anybody that's not into this world, we, that is a raw deal. Like this is something that nobody ever gets an opportunity to do this because if anybody wants to start their own bourbon brand, there's this whole idea of bourbon brokers, the, all these people behind the scenes that trade barrels, like their stocks or something like that, yeah. like that actually exists. And they're, they're just shipping barrels between all these different distilleries and bottlings and all this other kind of stuff. But to really get a brand started like that, you would need to make a phone call to somebody and you say, oh, I want to buy some bourbon. They say, how many barrels? And you say, uh, 10, 15, 20, whatever it is. Each one of these at the very least amount is probably $1,000 at the most expensive is around 6,000, depending on the age as well as the location, whether it's Indiana or Kentucky bourbon or anything like that, vice versa, Tennessee, they all have these varying price points. And the way that it typically works is that you say, okay, well, I'll buy X amount of this. Can I taste them all? No, you can't do that. 
but mm. they're going to show you can get a sample of the entire lot and that's going to be representative of it. So these barrels could show up. They could have. And this is the thing is that each one of these barrels has a fixed price point. So we'll just say it's $3,000. So a fixed price point, $3,000. You could get 200 barrels or 200 bottles out of that barrel. You could get 80 bottles out of that barrel. You're still paying $3,000, right? So it's a super, super risky type of business to get into. Plus, you might think the sample tasted good that you got it, but it doesn't taste the exact same on the barrels that you got. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's just the way the business is. So it's it's a huge risk to kind of go into this this sort of wow. thing. So he gave us the opportunity to come and not only just select barrels that we wanted out of his inventory, but he gave us really good financing terms on them as well. Mm. And that really helped us catapult and build what was our original version of the of our brand, which was Pursuit Series and just single barrels that we were doing because we already had the single barrel club and it was great. And we said, okay, well, we could supplement this with, you know, maybe 12 extra barrels a year and it gives us an opportunity to create a little bit more additional revenue and income. But as soon as we started going down this path, we realized that starting your own brand is actually, there's a lot that goes into it. It's everything from the regulation side of things, registering with states, getting distributors, marketing, I mean, label, glass, tops, PVC, like every just yeah. the entire product pieces of it. There's just so much, there's so many moving pieces. So we were doing the single barrel thing for a while. And we started really ramping that up. I think we had like 30 or so different releases. And the same guy that kind of was talking about earlier, he goes, well, this is great, but you all need to come out with a batch product. These single barrels are killing us. And so <laughs> I said, well, let's see what we can do. Uh, so we spent about a year in research and trying to find uh, different barrels that were in the open market and just couldn't find something that we wanted. And we ended up finding a few different barrels from these distillers we had relationships with already. And we said, how about we build a partnership off this? Because everything in the whiskey world and what we try to do almost to a fault is based on transparency. And I said, what we'll do is we'll take all your whiskey. We're going to create our own bespoke blend, but we're going to say where it comes from. And so mm. we're going to give you, we're basically going to pay you to do advertising is what, what, what it comes down to. And that really became the genesis of what is our Pursuit United product, which is our small batch bourbon and a small batch rye product. And so now we partner with four different distilleries and we're currently going through different sort of fundraising and modeling and spreadsheeting uh, to figure out what we need for the next few years. Like we've, we already spent 1.3 million last year in new make barrels and we got to do that every single year for the next, well, probably forever. Wow. And so now we're trying to figure out new financing ways to, to make all this happen. You know, it's, it's fun. It's exciting. It's definitely makes you a nervous wreck at times. I'm sure. Uh, especially when you see the valleys of red, uh, as you start going through here, when you got to start paying back the principal on loans and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, it all comes out that we don't get to pay ourselves till about 2028. So wow. we know that's a, it's a long road ahead of us, but it, it's, it's super exciting to be able to sort of chase that dream and know that there's going to be some, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we can, we can take all. And that, I think that's the great thing is that we've taken all the knowledge that we've taken, we learned in the podcast, interviewing the best people and using them as advisors, as well as we started going down here and building this new business and building this product. And the the great part about it is that we already had an existing audience. I mean, yeah. a- anybody that's a new brand, there's an education, there's everything that you have to go through to to try and find and capture that audience. But thankfully, we already had a, a great established listener base. And so we're trying to capitalize on that. But we know that in the long term, you know, we've got to break through you know, the, the thousand true fans, we've got to break through and we got to get to mass market and it'll happen, but it'll, thankfully we've got time as, 
because whiskey takes uh, age and takes time to to make it great. We got some cycles on our hands. Yeah. And I noticed that you uh, your bottles are from 65 bucks to 110 bucks a bottle. Uh, how is the brand doing? Are you getting interest? So the way that, that typically it all works is that we'll go and we'll bottle and then we sell it to distributors and distributors have to sell it to liquor stores. And so we've been sold out now. Gosh, uh, we're on the verge of... I think since our last release, two months. So we've been sold out. Wow. Um, we, we only have two releases a year of our United product. And then we kind of fill in the gaps with single barrel releases. And so we're kind of constantly going through and, and making sure that we can fulfill the needs and everything like that. But right now it's, it's a small scale. It's uh, anywhere about 10 to 12,000 bottles of each per year. And the idea is that we want to scale that to close to at the final, it'll be probably around like 275,000 bottles between the two different brands. And so that's why we're having to lay down all this whiskey now because nobody wants to sell us aged product. If right. we could and just buy four to five year, 60 or seven year bourbon now, I wish we could. But the problem is, is nobody wants to sell it. And if they do, they want to sell it so much that you price yourself out of that $65 category about where we want to be. But yeah, we have some that were up in the $110 category. That was from our stocks of 15-year-old bourbon that we used to have that we sadly no longer have any more left of. It's just one of those things that once you have something, you think it's great. And then we used to go back down there like, hey, you got any more of those 15-year barrels? Like, oh, no, we can't sell you any more of those. So we're like, "Ah, well, that's the way the market works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is all just very exciting to hear. And I mean, no matter what someone's niche is. I can see the wheels turning in people's minds as they listen to this because there's always opportunities to serve your market in bigger and better ways. And part of what's so inspiring to me about this is you guys are still working full-time jobs besides all this. That's true. Yeah, there's there's a lot of, I wouldn't say contention in my house, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a workaholic. I guess that's the way it kind of comes down to it. Is, <laughs> but it's, it's, not a, it's not being a workaholic. I, I love the feeling of, of like, what does success look like? Like, what does it look like to take something to the next level to see growth and to figure out what could there potentially be out of this. I think that's what I'm, I'm like Gary Vee says, like I'm addicted to the process. I love the process and I'm, yeah. I'm always finding myself like new ways of how do we grow things? How do we pivot? How do we bring new products to our, our line and everything like that? Carrie, as you said earlier, it's like we got into bourbon, but if you're a podcaster, like you can go into really anything, and whether it's writing a book or whether it's giving talks or motivational speeches or whatever it is. And in the whiskey world, we didn't want to waste our time, not waste our time, but we didn't want to get caught in a bunch of things like, oh, we'll do private whiskey tastings for people. We, we've got families, we've got other things outside of this. And so what we thought is let's build a sustainable business. Let's build something yeah. that can scale. And I think that's for us, that's really what we look at is, and that's the great thing about podcasting. Like podcasting can scale because- me and you are having this conversation, but all it takes is a little, maybe a little bit of ad dollars and a little bit of something behind it to really help grow the show and and continue building the audience around it too. And so what we can do is we can start off with a base product and hopefully continue to scale that instead of just having, you know, me and whomever like go around to different houses and do whiskey tastings. Like it's not a scalable business. So I want to make sure that we find that that area that we know that we're not going to be constrained just by our resources. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think your point about that ad dollars uh, when you get to that point is is powerful. Another thing I've noticed, though, is uh, the right influencers, the right people who really adopt your brand and, and spread the news can make a huge difference as well. I mean, in your case, I was just thinking about the show. I don't know if you're watching Blue Bloods, you know, Tom Selleck and his family, and they're always drinking bourbon or scotch or something at the end of the show. And if Tom Selleck 
were to uh, really take a liking to your brand and just kind of made that known, man, you know. Oh, boom. gosh. I, he needs to wait a few more years because if he did that <laughs> now, if he did that now, we don't have enough product to sell. So, he yeah. needs to wait a few more years until we have product to sell and then he'd be more than welcome to bring yeah. him on as a celebrity spokesperson for yeah. us. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Kenny, I sure appreciate your time. Uh, as you think about your podcasting journey and where you started out way back in 2015 and where you are now, um, what's the biggest pieces of advice you could give to podcasters who are aspiring to do something similar that, to what you've done, but the discouragement sets in, they hit roadblocks, all those sorts of things. What, what would you say to them? There's a few pieces of advice that I'd give. And one comes from the technical side. <laughs> you, you said you went back and listened to the first episode. Man, it's it's rough. And I think that's one of those things that if you want to get into this is you need to invest in the right equipment. Yeah. You want to make sure that your quality is, is first and foremost. You know, kind of what I said at the top of the show, your audio sounds bad. Nobody's going to listen to it. Make sure that you put the listener experience first and foremost and that you are trying to deliver a good product and listen to your audience as well and figure out what they want to. So that's from a, a technical aspect. From an aspect of how can I build myself to be a better interviewer or a better podcaster or anything like that, record yourself two, three, four, five times interviewing your mom, your roommate, whomever it is, and go back and listen to yourself hmm. and figure out, do I have that energy? Am I filling it with a bunch of ums and you knows, so's, likes, and the filler words that for anybody that's in the editing side has a nightmare of having to, to worry about. And so you can be a better podcaster just through that. At the same exact time when you're doing that is you're becoming a better interviewer too. You know, you said you went back and listened to episode one and we interviewed episode one was the master distiller of Buffalo Trace, which is probably one of the most famous bourbon distilleries in the world. And they've got all kinds of awards. Like that's where Pappy Van Winkle and all this other kind of stuff comes from. And we got to sat down with the guy that makes it all. And we asked questions like, what's the greatest job about being a master distiller? I'm like, golly, <laughs> like if I could go back and yeah. ask better questions, I would. And I think that's just one of those things that you've got you've to gotta really harness and figure out, well, what is it that people are going to care about and get better at the interview process and kind of know the questions that people will want to dig into. And I think that's one of those things that you'll get better with it. I've gotten a lot better having a conversation with somebody and they'll drop a little bit of nugget as they're telling a story and I'll kind of put it in the back of my mind and I want to revisit it after they get done telling it because you can dive a little bit deeper. Like you can keep the conversation going without having to steer too far off and look back at your notes and saying, okay, next we're going to talk about this. Like you can have that more meaningful conversation with somebody. So I would say that's from, you know, the the technical and then to the the personal building of just what you can do to be a better podcaster. Yeah, those are wonderful tips. A resource, I don't know if you're aware of, Kenny, but uh, that I recommend to people all the time is a show. It's a podcast called The Turnaround. And it's an interviewer interviewing famous interviewers about interviewing. And it is <laughs> incredible. Right. Yeah, people like Larry King and Katie Couric and, and Terry Gross just dropping bombs of what they do to get the good answers. And it's just really cool. Now, those guys also have the benefit of getting three hours worth of interview and editing it down to 20 minutes. So yeah, not everybody gets that pleasure, do we? No, not at all. <laughs> not Make at the all. most out of your hour. That's right. Well, Kenny, thank you so much. I'm going to put all your contact info in the show notes for this episode. So I'll make sure people can find your podcast and your social profiles and that kind of stuff. If they want to reach out to you. For sure. Again, thank you for having me on. It's funny. I love telling the story because this is a passion. Like this is, it's a hobby and 
even though at one point you kind of felt the burnout, it fi- kind of get there, like push through that wall and you'll find something that gets you your lucky break and you can start figuring out, okay, I can, I can either make a living from this or I can have more fun with this, whatever it is. Just figure out what ROI means to you into this and you'll be able to kind of push through that next phase. Yeah, well said. Thanks so much, Kenny. Cheers. Hello. What Kenny and Ryan have been able to do from starting a podcast way back in 2015 is really amazing. And now think about that. Here we are at this recording. Seven years later, these guys are coming up on their eight-year anniversary. And it's taken that long for some of these dreams to come true. But remember, they just started out with a simple desire. And that was to learn and grow all along the way and serve their audience well. And it's turned out to work very, very well. That really is at the heart of entrepreneurship. That's what's at the heart of business is to find a need and meet it. And Kenny and his co-host Ryan have done that. I hope their story is inspiring to you and helps you think through your niche so that you can find better ways to serve your audience. That's all we've got for today. Go out and make it a podcastificating day. This show is brought to you by Podcast Fast Track, where my team provides professional podcasting services without the time suck. Full production, editing, and show notes all in one monthly subscription package. You can find out more at podcastfasttrack.com. Now go out and make it a podcastificating day. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.